Paramhansa Yogananda, a biography by Swami Kriyananda. Talk 5 by Asha Praver, March 13, 2012. Copyright 2012, Ananda Church of Self-Realization, Palo Alto. Okay, good evening everyone. So, tonight we will continue with Master Salient Characteristics. Do we have any comments or thoughts from anything we've read so far that you might like to discuss before we go on? Okay. <laughs> Last week we spent a good long time on desirelessness. And what's interesting is right after desirelessness comes non-attachment. So the discussion tonight is the difference between having no desires and having no attachments. So it's sort of fun. I was talking to someone recently just about what we're doing, going through these characteristics and just how intriguing it is. Because the Master, I mean, Swamiji is so brilliant. How do you, how do you actually quantify the nature of a Master? On one level it's impossible, but they're there. Their whole um, life is just simply to be an example and to show us how to live. Um, I am the way, the truth, and the light, and no one comes unto the Father except through me. And so this is walking in the Master's footsteps, exactly. When, when Jesus said that, he was speaking of the characteristics of Christ consciousness, that unless we become like he is, then... And then there's the other thing, which is always so intriguing, in the Festival of Light. Greater can no love be than this from a life of infinite joy and freedom in God, willingly to embrace limitation, pain, and death for the salvation of mankind. We hear all that. Then it says, here then is the fourth and last stage of the soul's long journey, away from its home in God. And the first three we understand. We've been sent out from God. We had the mission. We revolted against the mission. We began to quest after truth. That's three. And then we kind of leave the bird, and then we go on and do all these other things, and we start talking about the descent of the avatar to um, give us the answer. But the fourth and last stage is to have that kind of freedom and that kind of compassion. It's, it, it's just sort of, it's just thrown in there. Um, but it really is. This is the last stage when we're just willing to do anything for the salvation of others. But it, it, it doesn't... And that, at that stage, so they tell me, it doesn't feel like it looks to us. Um, when uh, Ananda Ma, when Swamiji complimented her, her thanked Ananda Ma for her selflessness and taking care of everyone, and she responded, oh, is that how it looks to you? You know, meaning that from her point of view, there was no, there was no other. You know, from our point of view, we think that they are giving to us, he is giving to me. But from the point of view of the Master, there's no other. There, as Master said, how can there be humility when there is no sense of self? How can there be generosity when there's no separation? I mean, even generosity implies that somehow we've expanded beyond a certain boundary, and now we're being generous. Oh, look how generous he is with the money he had. He's so generous with his time. He's so generous with his advice. He's so willing to train new people. But all of that implies that there are two engaged. And one of them is expanding in order to aid the other. And it doesn't take into account the possibility, because incomprehensible, of there being no separation. 
That's why Ma said, oh, is that how it looks to you? She just exists. I wish I could quote it exactly, but um, just speaking of Anandamoy Ma, I'll have to try to find it somewhere. Uh, Swami Om, Swami Mangalananda, who has visited here sometimes, he's an American, but he's lived so long in India, he's really an Indian man, except for the color of his skin. And he runs an, he's part of an ashram, that he's a disciple of Anandamoy Ma. He publishes a newsletter, and he's been extracting from a book, which I don't think you can get in America, which is a biography of Anandamoy Ma, just exquisite. And one disciple, this is one of the extracts, described the first time, oh, he, he, he was talking about Anandamoy Ma looking at a sunset. And he was standing, well, he had two, the first was, the first time he saw Ma, he said it was, he said her, her aura was so outside of anything he'd ever experienced, he said it was as if a large beech tree had sort of walked over and bent down to touch him. I mean, he, it was just like there was a human body moving, but there was just this sort of sense of elemental force, but it was written beautifully. And then in another, he describes the same descript- the same person was saying, watching Anandamoy watch the sun go down uh, over the mountains. It was as if she and the sun were, were sisters. And they, and they were equals. It wasn't like she was watching the sun go down. It was like she was watching a member of her family sort of carry out, you know, just trying to, beautifully saying in words um, what uh, it might mean. So anyway, so Swamiji listing out these characteristics is really um, like making a road map. It's not the city that we're trying to reach, but it's the arrows that point to it. I guess nobody uses maps anymore, but uses a GPS, but it's like that little thing going down <laughs> All right, number seven. Complete non-attachment was another characteristic of his. Toward the end of his life, he made plans to go to India. I was one of the people he wanted to take with him. Twice he had to cancel his plans. The last year, those plans were canceled permanently by his final exit from the body. The last year but one, I asked him, Sir, shall we be going to India this year? I am not curious about those things, he replied. What Divine Mother wants, I do. Not curious about a trip to India? I was amazed. That's all Swami says. Well, you know, I was really contemplating the difference here. Last week we talked a lot about what it is not to want anything, to just be in a state of complete contentment. And non-attachment is so that in the way you know Patanjali distinguishes you know it's one thing not to want what is not yours it's quite another not even to identify with that which is already yours <laughs> you know we we think above all about our bodies and being our attachment but you know there's just so many desires the people in our lives the comfort of our routines the home that we live in um, not being hungry not being cold there's just so many elements you know of uh, well, those are desires, but just to be where we are, but not to have our life defi- be defined by those realities. I, it was interesting the other night when I was uh, falling asleep, I think because I've been working um, rather continuously on the school project, and uh, you know, just you get a little overwrought. I get a little overwrought in my mind. My mind is calming down now, but when I get really engaged in a creative project, it just doesn't stop. You just wake up in the night and just, bingo, there you are. Oh yeah, I could, you know, use the black fabric for that, and then I could put this on over here. 
It's just the way, I, the way people are, the way I am. But sometimes, um, you know, in the subconscious state, your subconscious reveals itself to you. And I, I have anxieties, like everybody has anxieties. And it's interesting, I was, I was between sleep and wakefulness the other night, and I started uh, just thinking of uh, imprisonment and starvation and um, horrible images that I've gotten in my mind from movies or from books I've read, you know, the way that people would die in difficult ways. And I was just conscious of the fact of uh, fear. You know, it's, I don't, nobody's torturing me. Nobody's ever tortured me. Who knows if I'll ever be tortured. But you think about men who got trapped in Vietnam and, you know, um, McCain and people like that who just had moments of time in their life when everything really went different for them, different than they ever expected to be, and it stayed that way for a long time. And, you know, what is the source of that anxiety? You know, is it, is it fear of death? Is it fear of suffering? Is it fear of not being able to deal with evil? You know, just all of those. And I, th- I think of Swamiji and just the calm way that he can think about anything. Remember the dream that he told us about where he was being burned at the stake? He wrote us that letter about, he just dreamt he was being burned at the stake. And uh, he said in the way of dreams that was odd, everybody else was sort of having dinner off to one side and he was being burned at the stake over here. (laughs) And everyone was just sort of enjoying their dinner and he was being burned at the stake over here. But he said what was so interesting to him was that his sense of what was happening to him was not that different whether he would be sitting at the dinner table being burned at the stake. He said it'll hurt for a while, but then it'll pass. You know, just the sense of what difference does it make? And that's, he's always telling us about going to the dentist without taking Novocaine. And I, I'm certain one of the reasons he does that is because so many of us fear physical pain. And, you know, if God wills that we suffer, we will. But there's not, there's not that much you can do to face that. You know, going to the dentist without Novocaine is one of the ways in which you can test yourself against your um, detachment from physical sensations. I've never even tried it. It's one of those teachings, remember I referred to teachings that I never really think apply to me? (laughs) That is not one that applies to me as far as I'm concerned. I mean, if God wills, I will, but not until He does, believe me. But just to be so detached, not merely from things in your life, but from the experiences, the actual experiences that you think are happening to you. And, and to be detached from them, because he, he, his next, um, well, it's, it's two down from it, but this is number seven, and in number nine, he talks about how, mas- how much Master enjoyed life. And so there's a very fine line here that we, we have to sort of keep in mind, because so many people's idea of detachment... Swamiji made a remark once about a, a certain individual. He said, that person appears to be more detached than I am. He said, but it isn't true. He said, in essence, what Swami said was, my detachment is so complete that I don't have to guard my feelings at all. Whereas the other individual guards his feelings, and that gives the impression of greater detachment. Which is a very interesting, and in another context, Swami remarked about uh, the freedom he had in a certain situation, and he remarked, in contrast to someone else, that that other person was not as accustomed to just following their heart in the trustful way that Swamiji had developed. 
Now it's, a, it's very interesting because we often think that non-attachment means that we don't have that much feeling about things. You know, whereas in the truth of it is, when you're non-attached, you have no reason in the world to guard your feelings. You can be as enthusiastic, you can be as generous-hearted, you can be as engaged with people, you can be as forthright about your feelings as you want to be, um, because you're not attached to it, it's just a fact. You know, this is how I feel. I remember, you know, many years ago, this being like when I was a teenager and a little after that, when I was in college, my, the one year I went to college, and I just always, I could never understand why people were so afraid to just say what they felt. I mean, I certainly had lots of fears, and I was much more fearful then than I am now. But I just thought, if, you're, if you like someone and you express an interest in them and they're not interested in you, well, what if you lost? You know, you've just simply said how you feel, and if they're not interested in you, so what? This was when I began to learn, really learn, that people wanted to be happy, but they never ever wanted to change themselves. That was among the many reasons why I dropped out of college. It was just like, everybody wanted happiness. And so I would make what seemed to me like obvious suggestions about how to increase it. But that would require some personal change. And the personal change was not really part of the picture. The only thing that was part of the picture was the result. And it was just like, loony to me. I made the decision after that one year that the most unhappy people in the world were college freshman girls. <laughs> it's just like, I mean, I was no, I was no prize myself, but I certainly had a better understanding than they did. At least I was persuaded that I was going to have to shift, that the world was not going to shift for me. At that point I still didn't know how, but at least I had that, you know, yogic memory of that. But to, to be non-attached is absolutely freeing because then you can commit yourself to everything. You can commit yourself to any project, you can commit yourself to any person, you can commit yourself to any ideal. Because if it works out, it works out, and if it doesn't work out, well, there you are, you've tried it. I know when uh, at a certain stage in Swamiji's life, when he um, stepped back from his renunciate vows when he thought Parmeshwari, the woman that he'd met in Hawaii, was going to stay with him as a spiritual partner. And instead, in nine months, she just left after he'd made this literally international announcement about this change in lifestyle and everything. And then she just decided it wasn't for her and she went away. And I remember Swami just sitting in his living room and sort of looking at us. I mean, now that this had happened, and there was an article published in Yoga Journal and before the, you know, because, you had, because of the paper print deadlines, by the time the article came out, it was no longer, she was no longer in his life. You know? <laughs> so it's, you know, like published in Yoga Journal, and by that time she's already gone, there's a picture of them, it's, you know, Swami Kriyananda's new, new chapter. And Swami just looked at us and he said, if I chose to be, I could be quite embarrassed. He said, <laughs> he said but I choose not to be. And just, you know, just as calmly as that, he said, I, you know, I've just, and from a certain point of view, I, it's just, I've been made a fool of, but why go there, you know? And when we were engaged in those lawsuits and SRF was working so hard to just destroy his reputation, and I mean, it was, it was, it's hard for anyone to actually believe what actually happened there because he just, you just can't, we don't live in a world in which people behave so dishonorably as they did in that case. 
and just deliberately and gleefully tell so many lies. Um, John Parsons, our attorney, has written a book, and it'll come out in a few months, and then you can read it all. But Swamiji just had to sit in the, in the courtroom and in these depositions and just be, just be humiliated. And, but his attitude was, Divine Mother, it's your life. And in, in fact, actually, um, it worked against us in the law, in the legal system, because the people who were accusing him were just over-the-top emotional, you know, just trying to create this sense of tremendous damage that had been done. And, you know, the Bergelucci herself, it was just so over-the-top. And then when it was Swami's turn, he was just completely centered. So the impression that people received was that he was cold because they didn't even know how to begin. They didn't have the slightest idea how to begin to understand what his frame of reference actually was. And, and I actually made, have made that mistake myself in his life, and it's taken me a while to, to get it straight. And I said to him once, just because you're detached from your feelings doesn't mean you aren't sensitive in your feelings. It's a very important distinction. You can feel things very, very deeply, and he actually feels things very, very deeply, but he doesn't become personally engaged in them. It's a very fine line. That's what detachment does for you. Your happiness doesn't depend on this, but that doesn't mean you can't see things as they actually are. Well, this is very sad. This is quite tragic. You know, this is a great disappointment. This is not, um, you know, what I'd hoped for. People try to be detached by killing their feelings. I'll say it again, because that's exactly, and it's a terrible mistake, because you're, because feeling, Swami's been talking about this a lot, because feeling is your fundamental nature. You know, when, when you finally get to your divine center, it's, it's a feeling of bliss. So when you kill your feelings, you're not actually moving closer to the divine. You're moving farther away because you're using your mental process to uh, using your intellect to to censor what is actually your true nature whereas in the state of high realization your feelings are completely free because you have tapped into the source of bliss does that make sense because it's an extremely important point that's why the that's why you feel so much love around the master there's just so much, there's so much giving. Um, I met someone today and she said something to me. Have you always been like this? I said, like what? I mean, I don't really know what you want. Like what? She says, so warm to people. And I just sort of had to, first I had to think, my God, what a world does she live in? <laughs> you know? And I said, well, I've always been very enthusiastic. You know, I mean, I didn't exactly know how to answer it. But I realized, you know, Swamiji, he's just trained us. Well, of course we're warm to people. Because everybody, why not? You know, it's just the way you would be. Because what do you have to, why not? What are you protecting? What are you afraid of? That's, I've mentioned Daniel Brinkley many times, but that was what I learned so much from him. Because he was so unafraid of everything, he just was so warm to people. He just embraced every single person he met, which is actually characteristic number eight here. It's just this freedom because you're not, you, you want nothing from people, desirelessness, and you're not attached to what happens. 
but, but the only thing you're attached to is what Divine Mother wants. Because that's what he says, I only want what Divine Mother wants. And, and that single attachment allows whatever comes as being from her to be exactly what you wanted. I had that experience, which I wrote about in my book, when uh, we were working on the incorporation of Ananda Village as a California city, which is a project we worked on for 18 months, and that all just ended in a minute, because we, we were voted down by the local agency, and we were going to sue them because it was done so badly, and then Swamiji just had an uh, intuition that we should drop it. So I worked on it for 18 months with the kind of determination that, I mean, I apply now to making costumes for children, which was, is not nearly as big a project, but I just, it was constant for that period of time. And then in a matter of minutes, Swamiji just stopped the project. And I, I it, it stopped before I had time to process it, just because of the circumstances. I've written it, so I won't repeat it. But what was so fascinating to me, because I once he decided, and I, I understood why, I didn't have the slightest problem with dropping the project. But it was so interesting to be absolutely full tilt and then have it just vaporize on you like that. And it was, it was fun. It was really fun because I got to see where my attachments were. Because if my desire was to do God's will and God dissolved it, what was there to want to do anymore? And in effect, that's what happened because Swamiji had meditated on it and just changed his direction. He asked me to do it, and then he said, let's stop. So there was no question in my mind um, about whether we would go on. Of course we would stop. But I got to watch where my energy clung. You know, folding up the office, dropping the project, not being a California city, you know, who cares? If it's not a good idea, it's not a good idea. But I had become emotionally involved in, in... not having those icky people who were opposing us win. It wasn't even that I minded losing, but it bothered me that they had, they had won. That because they had not been nice, and they had not been honest, and they had not been, which bothers me the most, rational. <laughs> they had not been reasonable or logically consistent in their objections, and that really irritated me. And, then they, and still they got what they wanted. And I had an attachment that I didn't like to see injustice triumph. And I didn't like to see his hysteria triumph over reason. And it was just interesting. It was very, very interesting to watch. Uh, and then uh, I've, I've mentioned that I got sick. I, I don't get sick very often, but I got sick and I got a very high fever, which was also very unusual for me. And just it was sort of like it, all that just burned out of me. And so within a week, because that whole thing, it happened really fast, I was just fine. I didn't care after that. But it, it's, it's interesting to just ask yourself, what am I attached to? I remember that when uh, um, Mother Teresa of Calcutta was asked about the work that she did. And they asked her about helping the poor and the dying and the sick and all that. She said, I do what Jesus asked me to do. And you could see that if Jesus said, oh, I think your new ministry is going to be in Beverly Hills, she would just pick up and go to Beverly Hills and she would never think about the poor people of Calcutta ever again. Because that wasn't what she was doing. She was doing what Jesus asked her to do. It's just, it's a, it's a universe of difference. Yes, Stacy. No, we don't. So okay. I'll have to repeat the questions on this one. Okay, good. That's perfect. Um, uh-huh. I have a couple things to say. First about the Mother Teresa uh-huh. 
reference. So I've seen a documentary on her, uh-huh. and there's a lot of live footage of her helping these yeah. sick children, sick people that are like totally skin and bones. And I watch it, and I felt touched, you know, in a, in a, you know, sure at her work, and also at the sadness of seeing it. And her, the way she reacted to all these people, was just totally in joy. Like she uh-huh. was totally not attached to the pain, and and she just, I don't know, it was just amazing. It's she amazing. Just so joyfully, yeah. and then. Uh, the other thing I want to say about non-attachment was non-attachment with the past and pain. Right. Um, I remember you talking about those two sisters that were in the concentration camp. Yeah. And how one of them was just totally, her perspective was just so different than I could imagine. Yeah. Most people can, you know. Betsy and Corey Ten Boom. The first comment, in case it doesn't come through on the tape, was about watching the documentary of Mother Teresa and watching her pick up the dying people. In that, it's probably the same documentary, but one that I also saw. She said, uh, you watch me and you see this maggot-infested, dying person. She said, I just see the face of Jesus. So again, it's like Anandamoy Ma, oh, that's what it looks like to you. See, we see, oh, I mean, sort of like in a a different context, but not that different. I've often commented that I'll see Swamiji do something and I'll think he has mastery over, he has self-control, you know, he, has, he disciplines his natural aversions. I mean, whatever words I might think of. And then over the years I've learned, no, no, no. His consciousness is different. And so he's not seeing somebody who's unpleasant to deal with that he has to be patient about. He's just seeing a soul trying to come to God. And so that whole middle part, which is the part that my egoic self struggles with, he's not struggling, he's just responding. So we see Mother Teresa, you know, picking up this dying person and we think, oh, you know, what incredible capacity she has to endure the horrible. But she's seeing the face of Jesus, so why wouldn't she pick, bend down to pick it up? I was just reading uh, The Life of St. Francis again, and talking when, he, when the leper crossed his path and he went and kissed the leper, thinking at that time leprosy was catching, contagious, and so it was an amazing thing for him to do. And, but he, he just didn't feel any aversion at that point because he, he felt like Jesus was walking there. And then, in fact, the leper disappeared, that it had been some kind of a divine apparition. But uh, uh, Mother Teresa of Calcutta, we met her a number of times, because when we used to go to India, we first started going to India, she was still alive. You must have been on several of those trips. Was, was she still alive when you were there? Amr, did you meet her? Or was she gone by the time you got there? It was one year after she passed. Yeah. But we would, did you? I met her actually in the United States. When she came to America? Yeah. I met her. I mean, I was there. Uh huh. Did you sign for her talk? I actually did. Uh huh. It took you to a lot of interesting places. Yeah. She was. She was one of the most. I I don't want to use the word prosaic, but she was one of the most just down to earth practical people. Absolutely no. She had no interest in anything except just the straight middle of what she was doing. She had the policy there was you would go in Calcutta where her mother house was. You would go to Mass at 5.30 or something like that, 6.30, and then she would meet with foreign groups after that. And so then you'd sort of stand around her little office. She was about two feet tall. She was the smallest person. Krishnadas, who's a very small man, you know, was peering over her. But she was just, pour, she was poured out in service, and there was nothing superfluous left in her at all. And nothing super, superficial, that's the word I'm looking, nothing. She was just practical business, all about business. She was pretty nice. We actually... 
when we first met her, we had this thought, how can we communicate as quickly as possible who we are? So we sang. We sang some songs from the oratorio for her. And she, she, she got it. And by the second or third or fourth time we came, she said to one of her sisters, you should pray for these people. They have a lot of devotion. And they come every year and they have a lot of devotion. So she sort of got used to seeing us. It was interesting to me. I felt I was inspired by her. I was more inspired when I went to her tomb than I actually was when I went to see her. The year we went when she was gone and I meditated up against the, I would call it, you know, the mandir. It was very inspiring there. I never, you know, whenever we'd reach that point in our tours, for 20 years we took those, we took groups over there. We took a lot of people to India for the first time and a lot of people on our path because at that time we were the only game in town. Now there's lots of different ways to go to India, but then we were all just starting to go. But whenever we get to Mother Teresa, with all that, you know, simplicity and selfless service. In the mother house there, the nuns would wear the white uh, saris, and we, they, they had an, an exact routine that they followed, and after the Mass, they would all go out in the courtyard, and they'd all have a bucket in the water, and they would have one one sari, and they'd wash the other one. So they'd all be washing their other garment, and then they'd be hanging it up, and they live in these little concrete rooms, and I mean, it was a life, speaking for myself, that was so familiar, like a million times I've lived this life. And then they go out and help the poor people. But since Ananda doesn't do that kind of work, really, you know, there would always be, predictably, there would always be this ripple that would go through our tour group of uh, attraction for that life, guilt because we weren't living it. You know, it would have lots of forms, but it was a and then we'd sit in where we would stay in the Oberoi Hotel in Calcutta, which was this nine-star hotel, you know. And we'd talk about Mother Teresa's work. It was just, it was a study in contrast. Uh, but it was like, what was I going to say? You know, there's a certain point. I mean, it's just a way of serving God in in... In Christianity today and in Western spirituality, it's exactly what's written in the Festival of Light. Um, uh, on the lower, although still lit on the lower altars of good works, the noble taper of inner communion with the Lord burns low and is ill-attended. Let us together, united in Christ's love, set lights ablaze on that high altar once again. And I don't mean in any way to denigrate you know, the simplicity or the beauty of that life, but it's like it's not the life that we're called to live right now. It's not what Christ has asked us to do. You know, Master lived in Los Angeles. He, he lived in Mount Washington. And he didn't go and feed the poor. He could have. When, in, when you're in India, you do a little more of that. But even still, it wasn't, it wasn't what he gave us to do. And so even you have to realize that it's not like Everybody should feed the poor. Everybody should do what Jesus asks you to do. And uh, I, I feel when people ask me about that, I say, well, you have to devote your life to something. You can't do everything. And maybe some people are very inspired helping hungry people be less hungry. God knows that's helpful. But I think just having been there and done that over and over and over again, now you want, you know, the desire naturally comes that you just want to solve the problem from a different angle, you know. Yeah. Actually, really, I've always been really inspired by Mother Teresa and saints and stuff, and 
when I found out about the journal that was published after she passed away, I felt like devastated, you know, just reading some quotes, and I just was like, how could this be? Because I, I don't like to believe there's like, I don't know if this is right phrase of what it's called, but the dark night of the soul, or right. when you just can't connect with God, um, and so I just struggled with that, and then I thought, you know what, maybe that, maybe there was that inner devotion that was missing a little bit, or the inner communion with God, not devotion, but communion, maybe that was missing. You know, it's a funny, um, Swamiji comment, you know, the, after Mother Teresa died, some of her private letters were published. Um, I, I read some of it, I actually listened to an audio book but I couldn't listen to the most of the book because the priest sounded like this. I mean, this was the audiobook. The priest sounded like, Near Mother Teresa. <laughs> and Mother Teresa sounded like this. Dear Father, I was wondering if you could help me. And it's just like, it, just, it was so horrible. I tried to listen because I wanted the content. I couldn't bear it. I don't know, they got a 13-year-old child to play Mother Teresa as if that was like the image. It was so ghastly. But nonetheless, I listened to half of it before I threw it away. But it just talked about, you know, how she had no joy, she had no joy, she wasn't happy, she didn't feel this, she didn't feel that. And Swami just sort of shook his head. He said, there's something wrong here. And he didn't mean that it was necessarily wrong with her. It just, like, it, he, he, he speculated. I'm, maybe he would have something else to say, either... You know, she wasn't really in communion and she was as miserable as she wrote, or she felt obligated to be miserable, you know, to articulate, you know, misery because that's kind of the context that they're in. Because it, it would be hard to imagine she could have lived the way she lived without something moving her. I don't know what to say. It's completely, it was completely bewildering and extremely unfortunate. Was that? Well, it was just sort of, it was a, lot, a whole lot of letters that she'd never wanted to be published, and somebody decided to publish them. It was terrible. It was a terrible thing to do to her. You know, but everybody's lives, you can't fathom it. You can't tell what's going on in someone's world. And often, I've noticed this ironic thing at Ananda. Oh my, I say to someone, you just look wonderful. And they laugh, and they say, I've never, been, I've never had a harder period than I'm having right now. And often they do look wonderful because they're suffering so much that the effort to attune is greater. I, it's just ironic. What can you say? I don't think we even know ourselves what's going on. And what we feel may or may not be what's actually going on on the divine level. What was your gut feel as far as when you were with her as far as kind of the vibration of the sense of the vibration that was coming out of her? You know, I'm, I'm not the best person to judge. Because somehow if something isn't mine, it doesn't speak to me. And I just didn't belong to her, and I didn't belong to her life. I recognized it. I, I even, I, I won't say I would long for it, but it was, it was such a familiar life to me, and the simplicity of it was so attractive. That's the part of it that I, you know, the simplicity of that little cell and just two saris. Oh my, that was attractive. Um, but I could just see incarnations of doing it, and I just, knew that I'd reached the end of it. So, and I don't, I don't, I, maybe I'm not receptive. I just don't feel that much unless, so she was impressive to me. But, but no, I didn't get any particular feeling of joy or anything like that. So in that sense, when I read those letters, she, she didn't seem particularly joyful to me. But then again, I don't belong to her. Mm-hmm. You know, so she would see me coming and she would just look right past me because I wasn't asking her for anything. 
That's why it was interesting when I meditated where she was buried. I had a really deep and wonderful meditation. That I thought, and I thought about those letters. I thought, well, maybe it came to her afterwards. Mm. Who can say? Yes. My experience of her may have, uh, was almost as if there were two people. Interesting. Because when she talked, um, she would talk the church dogma mm-hmm. part of the time. You know, as if she was talking to the bishops, as if she was writing a letter and following what she thought she should say. Right. Know, the, the theology was really conservative. In fact, some of the priests, I've been there with the priest, and he talked about his... Well, that's what we just saw in San Francisco. Was really conservative, yeah. Right. But then she would tell a story about this person and that person. All of a sudden, it was as if she was an entirely different yeah, person. Interesting. And there you saw the love and the joy and the real, you know, just, just a simple person, treating a simple person. Right. You know, a real connection... Well, you know, Saranya, that contradiction of what she felt she had to do theologically and then what she was actually doing, that's what Swami was trying to point to. Mm-hmm. That, you know, those, those letters were what she had to do theologically because she had to write to her priest and she had to be the humble nun and she had to be suffering and she had to not presume. Mm-hmm. Almost like Mother Teresa of Avila. Uh, uh, mm. Teresa of Avila. Yeah. In the sense that she would uh, denigrate herself in her letters, you know, uh, right. this, this humble person I couldn't have possibly, you know. Right. Was she, was she the one that died like 19 or 21? No, 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 she was in the... Was I don't know. Oh, Saint Teresa. Saint Teresa. Okay, that one, yeah, because I read her diary and it was kind of the same. She was talking about, oh, I wish I could humiliate myself today and all these things. That well, that's why, whereas in the past, suffering and sorrow were the coin of man redemption. For us now, the payment, thank God, has been exchanged (laughs) for calm acceptance and joy. (laughs) Because this is a new age. This is a new dispensation. And, I mean, but see, Mother Teresa, it's interesting. This is all slightly related to what we're talking about, but it is. Um, when When we did the school play of the Dalai Lama, I was, I got, I got really interested in the fact that the two, the two figures that have really captured uh, popular culture's imagination. Two religious figures. One is the Dalai Lama and the other is Mother Teresa of Calcutta. I mean, those are... Everybody thinks that they're really great, you know, except people who are just really sour. But those are the two that get everybody's attention. Mother Teresa works with poor people and the Dalai Lama is political. He works with politics. He works with a country that's been taken over. He stands against a regime. And both of them are, you know, enormously extraordinary individuals. But those are the two big issues of our time, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. And so they're like popular culture saints. It's just very interesting. And people like us, like Swami Kriyananda, who's working to shift consciousness to establish Dwapara Yuga to create a, a self-realization. I mean, it's not where, where the culture is, period. And it's just, but but those two are, and that was their that was their mission, that was their work, and it's good work, of course, it's wonderful work. But it just it speaks to the reality that people are on, and therefore is can get all this uh, publicity. Whereas we're speaking to a reality that is so far in the future that it's just not it's not with us yet. There's not even a sh- there's hardly a shadow of it yet. Sounds like that uh, the vibration you felt of the. <coughs> It could be. I I couldn't say. I I just was. I was interested in that fact. 
You know, I wouldn't have gone back there except in our, my position as tour leader. Of course, everyone wanted to see it, even if she wasn't there. And because I'd seen it so many times, I just sat down and put my back up against the uh, square thing where, she, where her body was. And I mean, I meditated far more deeply than I've ever meditated in that place before. It was very impressive. I never know what to, when you're on pilgrimage, I never know what to make of things. You don't know whether it's just an accident of the moment, but it was, it, I would, I'm being, I'm understating it, it was coming from her. It was, it was really notable. I just felt like, ah, oh, she'd been freed. She'd been freed of the whole thing, you know. She really, she did what Jesus asked her to do, and she did it wholeheartedly, and she had her reward. She didn't have a role to play. Yes, yeah, and she was, also, she did what Jesus asked her to do. I mean, you can get used to that kind of life, but it can't have been easy, you know, to stay after day like that. There wasn't a lot of fluff in it. <laughs> but non-attachment. I mean, they had nothing, absolutely nothing. Just their one, one sorry and this sorry. And, but it just, it's so much fun just to think about your life getting down to that. Just, Master said you should change your habits, you should you know, not rely on your routines, and... On one hand, I think it's very comforting to know exactly what you're going to do and then you don't have to think about it. But just what if you can't? What if it just all gets taken away from you? Being Jewish is wonderful that way because, as I've mentioned to you before, I've always expected that in the end they'll take it all away from us and throw us into prison. (laughs) You know, the Jewish joke, all holidays are the same, they tried to kill us, they didn't, let's eat. That's what Jews say about themselves. They failed. They tried to kill us. They failed. Let's see. <laughs> but it's sort of, you, you have that mindset. That's why if, you, if you're inclined that way, you're born in with a Jewish body, you know, because whatever it is, it's going to teach you. <laughs> I think there's one clarification we should make is that uh, St. Uh, Teresa of Alvaro in her books, she didn't try to humiliate herself or anything like that. It's almost like you're reading... Sister Ganamata, because oh, yeah. she's very and, and obviously right. it's pretty clear she was, but it's really clear she's very, she's like a scientist, she's very analytic, she's trying to describe what she's right. doing, I mean, she's in these very high states, she's describing it very analytically, and the priests at that time didn't know what to make of it. All right. they knew was, well, it wasn't the devil, but we have no idea what to do, but when you read her books, you're going, oh my gosh, this is like... Pure yoga. This is a very analytic person describing their experiences in very, very. Well, that's why Master speaks of, he says, you should not um, read about all the Catholic saints, just the ones that are, as he put it, in our our line, right? And then he mentions uh, Francis and Teresa of Avila because their path was intercommunion, but others, their path was this kind of service, which is not. What master's here to bring us at this point, specifically? Okay, shall we go into the next one? Or actually, it's almost time for a break. So let's take a little break right now, and then we'll come back to number eight. Okay. Does he not include uh, John of the Cross as one of Well, he and others of our line. Yeah. 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 We've always asked, and who are they? And what does he mean of our line? <laughs> no, but you would think St. John of the Cross would have to be part of it, and there's others, Padre Pio among others. I mean, there's many, but what he meant by it was those, because many people were declared saints by the Catholic Church for a whole lot of reasons, because they were so loyal to the Church. And all that chitter-chatter, is there anything else that we need to talk about, or were we just talking about unrelated things? 
Uh, yeah. Um, Chittenbar said something about Mother Teresa of Calcutta that I feel articulated it more clearly than I had. He just talked about uh, her being, what was the exact word you used? Focused? Centered. Uh, centered. He used the word centered, which made me realize that she's, she's really on task. When I was trying to say she, didn't, she wasn't superfluous, she just is doing exactly what she was born to do, and she just wasn't really interested in anything else. I mean, and part of it was to be gracious to us and to be open to us. But we, we you know, she just she was doing her business, and that was what she came to do. And it was it was a very, in and of itself, it was a very impressive way to be. But that's why you always found her kind of so no nonsense. I'm here to do this, and I'm just going to do it, and that's that. And her mind wasn't going here, there, and everywhere for, you know, uh, in, oh, this is interesting, that's interesting. I mean, she was completely different than Master, <laughs> who was just, you know, interested in everything. She was at that stage of her own, I don't want to be presumptuous, but she seemed to be at that stage of her personal work where you just, she just honed in on it and did it. And, there, and as Swami says, Master, because his realization was so uh, uh, complete and had been for so long, was just able to be completely relaxed about everything. He didn't have to, to discipline his energy. He'd reach the top of the mountain and he could celebrate. And where he, whereas other Swami talked about this in terms of uh, some of the SRF uh, disciples with whom he didn't always get along. I don't recall where he wrote this, but I recall him writing, just talking about a certain lack of expansive understanding on their part. He said, if you're climbing a mountain and you're in a difficult part of the cliff and you just have to concentrate and go up, you can't really relate to anything other than exactly what's in front of you to accomplish. After you accomplish that, you can sort of relate to realities other than that. But if that's the part of the journey that you're on, you simply have to do it. And many people don't have the courage to do that. They don't have the courage and they don't have the willingness to... um, separate themselves from people as much as that requires. You know the story Swamiji tells about Teresa Nuiman, about when the young swains came to court her, she chased them off the farm with pitchforks. She didn't think, oh, these poor men, you know, how sweet of them to come, or oh, they're interested in me. She just said, I'll have none of that. You know, don't even think about me in that way and just chase them off the farm. It's just like she knew what she was about, and she wasn't. There was no halfway measures about her, so that was certainly what Mother Teresa was like. She had her path, and she was going to follow it, and she had blinders on, not in a negative sense. And it was that was very inspiring. I found that very inspiring about her. That kind of crystallized what I, and I really did feel she was poured out. She had poured her her life out. We saw her in the last few years of her life. She was very short. <laughs> and a little bit bent over, and you really felt that she, you know, she was collapsing in. <laughs> because she was empty. She'd been, she just emptied her consciousness out into all that Jesus had asked her to do, and she was just collapsing downward. Not in a bad way, just there was nothing, nothing left. What were you going to say, Sarah? Uh, well, I should have said at the beginning, but thinking about Master, uh, I tried to think about that I... That's my aspiration to be, to be like him. Sure. And what you've also said is that each of the masters have gone through everything we've had to. It's right. very inspiring. Yeah, it's very. It's very helpful. 
it's like, wow, you know, maybe it's going to take me who knows how many lifetimes, but that's all right. It's exa- you know, I, I do find that very, I find it very comforting. I know people are different. Some people were very inspired by the thought of, this is it. You know, someone was talking about a birthday greeting this afternoon. The, the birthday card said, may you have lots of birthdays in this life and no more afterwards. <laughs> but the other way to look at it is in God's own time. I'm doing my best. So it just depends on how you're constituted. Yeah. All right, any other thoughts or comments? Do you think everybody has to be go through that stage that she has, uh, well, has gone through that, that focus and forget about everything else? Oh, absolutely. I can't imagine it. I mean, you know, you read, you read the lives of the saints and then you, you read about saintly people or the lives of the saints. And then you try to translate it into actual real life experience. What was that really like? I've been reading Saints That Move the World again just because it's such a good book. Mm-hmm. And about St. Francis. You know, St. Francis decided he was going to live this life. He had been the son of one of the richest men in town, and he moved, you know, 300 yards away. <laughs> he didn't leave the country. He didn't leave the city. He didn't leave the area. He, his father was still in town, his mother whom he loved, and instead of being a wealthy man, he became literally a beggar on the street, and they thought he was a fool, and he walked right back into the same town and would hold, hold out a bucket for alms. And the same people, you know, his own father probably saw him standing in the square. This is not that large a town, and it was probably smaller then. And, uh, you know, standing in the square, holding, holding out his bucket, asking for scraps, when his own father had all this wealth to give him. I mean, talk about a focused energy and a total disregard for everything. And St. Clair who was, again, you know, part of this very wealthy um, strata of society and just walked away from all of it to go out to be with Frances. And it made perfect sense to her. She knew exactly what she was doing, but just so many layers have to be shed before you're able to just do that. Yes, Adam? Um, does, uh, does Swamiji go through the Patanjali's um, Eightfold in this book? Um, I think he does. Uh-huh. And it was this book, because I was reading both this and right. the Bhagavad Gita this morning, but either one, um, I was reading that section about, um, you know, on the path to God, you have to <clears throat> come to a point where you can focus one-pointedly right. on something, and it seems to me that that's exactly kind of the topic. Yeah, exactly. You I mean, the, the mind, well, you have to be non-attached to everything, except, I am not curious about these things, things Master replied, what Divine Mother wants. I do. That's lovely. You know, and you can. How do you know what Divine Mother wants? Well, you can sort of tell by what's happening around you. It's one of the clues. I mean, you don't become passive. These are very fine lines. You're not passive, but nonetheless, what it, what what is brought to you, what life gives you, you do. And that's, you know, you practice it all the time. Yes, Alan. Well, that sounds like infinite patience, and the masters have that patience. And I was reading a Bible verse today that I thought about, and I looked it up. Uh-huh. And uh, I thought it was in the Old Testament, but it's actually in Luke. And it's um, it's after the verses about the persecutions that were going to come. He's, um, Jesus is saying, "In your patience, possess ye your souls." 
Yeah. And I looked it up in a different translation. It was much more prosaic, but that's the King James Version. Uh-huh. And I just, that's so beautiful. That's very beautifully stated. In, in patience, possess ye. In your patience, yeah. possess ye your souls. But it, it turned out to be in your patience, possess ye your souls. Wow. Well, you know, there's just so many thoughts can be made so simple. Because you, you think about, I want, I want it now, I don't want it later, I want it to happen. So, I mean, these are the self-realization words, you're non-attached. Patience is the inevitable result of being non-attached. Patience is the inevitable result of desirelessness. Are we going to India? I don't know if Divine Mother wants us to go. I do what she tells me to do. And, and then where, where else is there to go? Mother Teresa says, I do what Jesus asked me to do. Where else is there to go with your mind? Of course, all of this presumes a kind of calm certainty that you are standing where you're supposed to stand, but it all kind of works itself in together. Your, your life is what it's meant to be, and whatever your life is, is what it's meant to be, and then the more you accept that Divine Mother is in charge, the more your life becomes what Divine Mother wants it to be. So it all sort of, you have to start where you start, and then you possess your soul because you're not just living in all of the rest of that. It's so fascinating, isn't it fun? Yeah, it's really fun. Anything else? Any other comments? He treated all, this is number eight, he treated all people equally and was as respectful toward any garage mechanic as toward someone prominent in the world of politics, business, or the arts. He used to walk with a cane, not as a rule because he needed one, but because to him a cane was like the danda, or wooden staff, which many swamis carry in India, as a reminder to keep their spines straight and to live more at their own center. A few days before he left his body, he went to a dilapidated shop to buy a new cane. It was a small item, but he wanted to be a conscientious custodian of the organization's money, so he bargained carefully. Once he'd got the price he thought right, however, he looked about him, Seeing what a very poor shop it was, he gave the owner much more money than he'd saved by bargaining. You are a gentleman, sir, said the owner, and thereupon gave him a particularly fine antique umbrella. Back at Mount Washington hours later, the master said, That man was so poor. He had a linoleum floor. I think I'll buy him a carpet. (laughs) Just so sweet. And you can see how that quality comes out of everything else, out of non-attachment, out of understanding others from within themselves, out of not really wanting anything, about being centered in the infinite. It's just, it, it's not easy to separate, to, to relate to people without imposing upon them the prejudices of your ego preferences. You know, this one is attractive, that one is um, boring, you know, this one is uh, looks tiresome, that one looks rich, that one looks poor. It's, it's just, uh, it's so much fun to try to just relate to the soul consciousness without relating to anything else. It's such a service, both your own consciousness and a service to the world. And then, if you don't need anything from people, then you can relate to them equally. It's only when you need something from them one way or another. It's very, very difficult to need things from people because people are very consistent about not coming through. (laughs) 
It's very hard. I mean, it's not easy. You can talk about it all you want, but you, that's where you get into the kind of non-attachment where you're not really feeling anything. And I'm non-attached because I never let anybody into my world. So I move through life. I'm non-attached, but I'm not in bliss either. And that's the great in-betweenness that people get into. Very tricky. Um, but at the very least, respect. And respect is something that Swami... I remember once he was giving a wedding ceremony and he, in the years when he used to do that, he said, people talk so much about love. He said, but respect is much more important. He said, because love is just a feeling and it'll come and go. He said, but if you have respect, you could always be friends. It's very sweet. And one of the stories that's in my book about Swamiji, a woman was going through a very hard time with her husband, and Swami really encouraged her to stay with him, despite many things that were annoying. But then she said to Swamiji, I think he doesn't respect me anymore. And that was the first time that Swami seriously talked to her about whether she should stay with the marriage or not. You know, and nothing else was enough um, to, to cause him in that particular situation to seriously ask her to. But as soon as he doesn't respect you anymore, well, if there's no respect, then that's the end of the relationship, so there's no place to go with it anymore. It's very, it's also, it's an interesting thing to practice in yourself, not only with strangers, but with the people who are close to you, to just maintain that respect, to not allow a kind of denigrating attitude to set in. You know, it's very easy when you're close to people to, to become so conscious of their failings that you begin to lose respect for them. Swami also comments about how it's, um, there's a common saying, this kind of a joke, that no man is great in the eyes of his own valet, which means that somebody who serves you closely sees only all your foibles, and after a while they don't have that kind of respect for you. Swamiji uses that in contrast. The closer you were to Master, the more you saw him, the more you respected him because in every circumstance he behaved as it's being described here. Well, you can't always ask people to behave in such a way that they never challenge your capacity to respect them. So you have to dis- begin to discipline your own awareness to the point where you can keep in touch with the part of them that should be respected, which is not the same as allowing them to take advantage of you or to behave in ways towards you that is not appropriate. I was talking to someone recently who was caught up in a very complicated relationship with a, a, a person to whom they feel an enormous sense of obligation. And the person was reciting to me just god-awful selfish things that this other person was doing. And, and it was being presented to me as if this was something that they just had to live with. I felt a little bit like Master when he went back and he saw how that woman was treating her husband and it was the bride that was intended for him. He said, I have some right to speak because you were intended to be my bride and I want you to know if you had nagged me like this, I would have left for the Himalayas in one week. You know, I would not have put up with this. And so I was hearing this person speak to me and I said, I would walk out of the room. Why do you sit there? Why do you go back and let this person talk to you like that? You know, why, why would you even sit there for more than five minutes? What is the point? It's not, you don't respect someone by just letting them behave in ways that are just absolutely unconscionable and just taking it. Actually, in a way, that's not respecting 
what should be respected, which is your own self. You know, you have to include yourself in the equation. But at the same time, people are funny, and they just are the way they are. Speaking, because we've been talking so much about Mother Teresa of Calcutta, I remember some, some film I saw that it was about the nuns in New York, where they, uh, and they were commenting about how in India there's tremendous poverty on the physical plane, but in America there's poverty of spirit. That the loneliness in America is just overwhelming. And there was this nun who just, it was some tenement they were living in New York or something like that, and she just went into some rat-infested little apartment for some lonely old man and was just cleaning up for him and using her broom and so on. And she, you know, all of Krishna's soldiers look like Krishna. So she had Mother Teresa's rather brusque, <laughs> impersonal manner. But there was also something in it that struck me in the film, and I've never forgotten it for that reason. She just was straight across with this guy. There was no, oh, you poor man, you're so old and lonely. Oh, you poor fellow, what a mess your life is. Oh, this rat-infested apartment is like just, here I am with the groceries, and I'm going to clean up the kitchen a little bit, and you know, then we'll go out and get some air, and it's just straight up. No pity, uh, no exaggerated sense of compassion either, just completely at ease with it. And uh, that's what I saw in Daniel Brinkley, too. He was just completely at ease with other people's realities. He could just let them be who they were going to be, and at the same time he could respond perfectly appropriately to them because he wasn't, he wasn't working so hard to be correct with them that he couldn't just say what he needed to say. Um, and the, the other, which is not included in here, but sometimes we have to work with this, it, we, it, we respect ourselves too. Even as I've often joked, you know, if I'm at the bottom of Master's list, I'm still on the list. And that's something to respect yourself for. We're sincerely trying. We don't have to be the valid Victorian of this particular disciples group. We can just be at the bottom of the class, but we still get our degree. <laughs> it doesn't really make any difference. <laughs> but just that very, that very comfortable. This world is just such a zoo. That's what I'm called. What did he call it once? Um, hospital. Hospital. That was the word he said. This world's just a hospital. That's what he said. And we know sort of one of those things where after a while we sort of chuckled for a little while ambulatory, mostly, but, you know, we wouldn't be here if we weren't um, deluded. Otherwise, we'd be, if those of, who are too good for this world are gracing another. So people are just here, being very skillful in their ignorance. And it's just, it doesn't require a big reaction on our part. It's like, well, hello, there you are. And you never know in, in the, the book of life who's, uh, who's at the top and who's at the bottom. Swamiji remarked when uh, the father of a friend of his in Sorrento died. Just a humble man. It was a, a humble family, and he was the hum- humble father of a humble family. And Swamiji said he, he died while Swami was there. And Swamiji said there was such a feeling of blessing around the man after he died. And he said he wasn't anyone notable. But you, after his personality was way you could see what you know purity of heart was there in him says you don't have to make a big impression on the world you never know who you're dealing with what is that story about the three hermits and they were told that one of them was the messiah or something like that and there or the small group of hermits i can't remember the story but it 
Yeah, there was like somebody. Everybody was told that somebody else was was the the uh, the saint, and so they all started thinking it might be him. It might be him. It might be him. And so everybody treated everybody really, really well after that. Because <laughs> you just don't know, and that you can see also, as I was saying earlier, that comes out of desirelessness and non-attachment. Because when we need or want things from people and when we have to have it a certain way, then all of a sudden our relationships with people are governed by our ego needs. And they're not, we're not doing what Divine Mother wants. And that's why Master could be so relaxed. Again, you have to think about it. He needed absolutely nothing. He was afraid of nothing. Whatever circumstances were in front of him, he knew where exactly what they were supposed to be. He just, over time, just purged from his entire consciousness any conflicting reality. There was only one in his universe. Amazing to contemplate, isn't it? And so the, how that manifested was this. He was unimpressed by worldly power. I mean, can you imagine a master being impressed by worldly power? I was reading The Time Tunnel, which is this, that other book that Swami's written, and in The Time Tunnel they go back and visit Diogenes and there's the story of the, you know, the Indian, the sage and Alexander the Great standing in front of him, and is there, you know, offering him all the riches of the world. What do I need from you? Well, you're blocking the sun. Could you move aside? But just to just to think that you can't be tempted by anything like that. Amazing. So well, why would Master treat somebody who who could do him a favor any differently? Yeah. Swamiji, in, in, I've been thinking about my book recently because I'm about to write again. He had that experience where he met, um, it was a woman who was one, one, of the, part of one of the wealthiest women in America. And uh, she was taking a very strong liking to him, and you know Anand always struggles for money. Um, but he, it, she was very, very suspicious of pretty much everyone. She'd been schooled by her family her whole life because it was old money not to trust anyone outside of the family because they all want your money. So she had this big expectation that we were all, Swami was after her money too. And uh, instead of catering to her, Swami actually sort of pushed it. He knew she had a certain prejudice about women's issues. And he kind of... He didn't follow the party line, you know, that he wasn't politically correct. And he challenged some of her thinking, and she became very um, upset with him and never really spoke to him again. She was, she was, there were a number of visits. And then finally, and he just said later, he said, I wasn't going to flatter her, and I wasn't going to go along with her like everyone does. He was sorry, he said, he felt he could have helped her a lot. He said, but I, I was trying to show her that I was going to be honest with her. But instead, she was also accustomed to getting her way. And instead of seeing him for what he was really telling her, she just dismissed him as not being in tune with her ideas, and that was that. Interesting. He was very, Swami was very sorry for it. But he just said, well, we might as well find out now instead of later. Good. Yeah, but you see, it's just like... He respected her. He respected her too much to play the game. But also he didn't, didn't need anything from her. I mean, Ananda could use money. I've always been waiting for somebody to just give him a, you know, a bottomless checkbook and a stack of checks. And 
He's 86. God better get with it pretty soon. (laughs) So, and the last one, which I'll read and we will just start on. Number nine, last for tonight. He had the ability to enjoy everything with the joy of God. In this he made a strong contrast with the sadhu I once met in Puri, India, who said to me, You shouldn't enjoy anything. Not even a beautiful sunset, I asked. No, nothing. (laughs) I thought, what a dry outlook. My guru, by contrast, enjoyed almost everything. In his enjoyment, however, he was attached to nothing. His enjoyment was the joy of God. Complete non-attachment was evident, even in his eyes, the gaze of which was always, in a sense, remote from the world. That's an amazing that's an amazing characteristic, isn't it? He had the ability to enjoy everything with the joy of God. You know, Swamiji set us an extraordinary example that way. I, would, I just these last few days, I've been working on this school project, and my gosh, those teachers work so hard. I mean, just so hard. And, it, and this particular couple of weeks is so impressive. But, you know, late at night or yesterday afternoon, suddenly they're drawing roses and painting them red and cutting them out with scissors and I mean it was just like there were a lot of other things that everybody in that room could have been doing but they're just drawing roses and cutting them out with scissors and I'm using little manicure scissors and it was totally fun you know just these things are just fun but they're not really fun I mean cutting out the edges of leaves with manicure scissors was not really anything that I would ask to do Yes, Adam? That, that was a lesson in non-attachment when Matthew decided they didn't need them. Yeah, the, yeah, I cut off all the leaves. Yeah, I cut out about. I cut about twenty-five of those leaves out. Maybe not that many, but it felt like a lot. Yeah, and I saw that. I said, "Oh." <laughs> and then you know, nishkam karma, action without desire for the fruits. There it was, because it was just you know, it's like it, they did look better. It would have been nice if they figured that out before we cut them out, but you wouldn't know until you do it. But if you're doing it with the joy of God, it just becomes like, that's the way it goes. It's just fun. I had that, my mind is on school play, but a couple of years ago when we did the Mirabai play, I just made so many mistakes in the costumes and that they didn't come out until the dress rehearsal. That was when I was trying to put little girls into real saris. I, sometimes my mind is really foggy. And I thought that a sari was held up by the string. It's actually held up by the hips. So if you if you put a, a, an actual wrapped sari on a child who's built like a pencil, <laughs> the sari falls off, which is what we found out at the dress rehearsal. <gasps> so all the costumes fell off, which was a first. And so in the, the next couple of days after that, there was just an enormous amount, and it just was it was a mess. It took a lot of work. And, the last night before the first performance, you know, there was just so much to be done. I think it was, it must have been a Tuesday night before Wednesday performance. I taught my Tuesday night class like this, and then I knew that, you know, it was just no sleeping, no sleeping actually. And I, I had so many projects, and I put one on every chair, and I just set the whole thing up. And um, Christy Dewey was here for a while, and we just, I set them all up on all the chairs. She went out and got me some sandwiches, and we had this big, a statue, a big uh, cut, a painting of Krishna, a big 
flat statue. I don't know how to say what it was, but um, and I just didn't look at the clock, and I just started working on it. You know, it's like nobody's hurting me. I'm warm. I'm fed. What is the problem? Is this, we're just going to do this. And I just, I literally, I worked until like 7.30 or 8 o'clock. I went home, I changed clothes, and I came back. But it was absolutely blissful. It was one of the most enjoyable evenings I've ever spent in my life. I was, I was in the sanctuary by myself with Krishna all night long, just sewing. You know, just one after another, after another, after another, until 7.30 in the morning. But, you know, it's like so much of it is in your mind. Just, oh, why am I here? I'm the only one here. I want to be somewhere else. You know, why could I be so stupid? Nobody stayed with me. Look, you know, just a thousand things that happened to you. But you don't have to feel any of those things because God is always with you. You can't always feel it. But every time your mind shifts out of that, you can just bring it back. I mean, in the course of this particular year's play, there were a couple of times when I was sewing those white blouses again thinking, what is wrong with me? Why did I ever think about doing this? Just one after another. And you, you feel that energy begin to crawl over you that tells you you are justified in being miserable. And then you ask yourself, what, where, where do I hurt? You know, so this is boring. Like, so what? You know, just back it up. And you think of Master, he could joy, enjoy almost anything. How does he put it? He says that. My guru, by contrast, enjoyed almost everything. Swami elsewhere comments, he says he, he finds it so amusing when people say, Master liked this or Master liked that. He said, Master liked everything because <laughs> he was always in a state of bliss with God. And certainly over the years that I've spent time with Swamiji, he just, he just, whenever you're with him, whatever it is, you're just enjoying it because he's always enjoying God's presence. And, you know, early on in my life with Swamiji, I didn't care where we were going, what we were doing. And whenever I am where he is, it's just fine. There's just nothing wrong in there because there's just that sense of just, I can enjoy everything with God's presence. I've never been tested. You know, it's like when Arjuna had to choose between being in heaven with his enemies or in hell with his brothers. He said he'd rather be in hell with his brothers. Because it's where they were, then he would find the bliss and the love that he was looking for. Because you can always enjoy it with the joy of God. It's, it's at least even just to meditate on it. It's very interesting. How far can you go with that? And another last point on that one, which I, don't, I think we'll talk about next week too, was uh, just always trying to solve whatever mental aberration you feel at the highest possible level. So if I'm not enjoying this, let me try to enjoy it because I have the joy in God. There's other ways that you can find to enjoy it, but also let me just enjoy it because of the joy I have with God inside of me. And just see if you can solve it at that level first. And then you may have to come out from that. But at least give yourself the chance because that's, how, that's why the masters are afraid of nothing. Because, and that's why Swamiji in his dream could just be being burned at the stake over here while they were having dinner. You know, what was the difference, really? You know, one was a little inconvenient for his body, and, but what was the difference? Where is, you know, the, where is the joy of God always with us? Well...
Isn't this fun? All right, great souls. That will be enough for tonight. And by the next class I have, we'll have done the school play, and I won't have to talk about it anymore. <laughs> I just joined the school staff for, you know, like six weeks, and it's fun for me. No, it's fun to hear about it. Yeah, all right. Bye-bye.